Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Uh, I am Thor Curlin, one of the co-directors of TMC. We're delighted to have you with us as we continue this series of seminars on theology, medicine, and culture. And it's my honor to introduce our speaker today. Dr. Gloria White Hammond is a pretty unusual person and a pretty exceptionally qualified to speak to us about the topic today. Uh, she is a physician who is also co-pastor of Bethel AME Church in Boston and is the Swartz resident practitioner in ministry studies at Harvard Divinity School. Dr. White Hammond's ministry of healing spans four decades and two continents. She served for almost three decades as a pediatrician at the South End Community Health Center from 1981 to 2008. And back uh, now, almost 20 years ago, Dr. White Hammond co-founded My Sister's Keeper, uh, an organization to provide humanitarian and human rights support to women and, ch and, uh, and girls who are victims of conflict in Sudan and South Sudan. Dr. White Hammond serves alongside her husband, Reverend Ray Hammond, who's also a physician, uh, to pastor the Bethel congregation. And her innovations within uh, that work include Shatter the Silence, a faith-based network of congregations committed to addressing sexual victimization of women and men in predominantly African-American communities, Planning Ahead, a ministry to encourage Black church members to begin conversations and complete their advanced directives regarding their wishes for end-of-life care, and Sacred Conversations, which equips clergy persons from diverse faith traditions to provide more effective support for seriously ill congregants. Here we are uh, late in a, a pandemic in which a lot of people have been seriously ill, and I know that both clinicians and clergy have been struggling to, to know how to walk alongside people faithfully. We're delighted to have Dr. White Hammond speak to us today about African-American spirituality, serious illness, and the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. A very special shout out to the people at the Theology, Medicine, and Culture um, uh, uh, program. I, I've long watched your work from Harvard and been so inspired. So thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to speak about an important topic at such an important time. We have certainly seen how the COVID-19 crisis has disproportionately affected people of color in Boston. Uh, our population is 22%. 33% of our cases are uh, African-American patients and 35% of our deaths. And I imagine that wherever you are, you've seen some similar statistics Certainly the overlap of the pandemic with the George Floyd incident and so many others uh, that are similar, similar to George Floyd 
have heightened our, our sense of indignation over systemic racism. And certainly for generations of uh, African-Americans, we have known the experience of poor healthcare that's been informed by that systemic racism, whether in the 19th century experimentation on black women by James Marion Sims, uh, who innovated so much of um, reproductive technology, or in the 20th century, the infamous Tuskegee study. And so uh, the, my point is that certainly for many African-Americans, the uh, experience with COVID-19, uh, it certainly highlights the, the ongoing um, uh, disparities and in many ways exacerbates the disparities that are so familiar. Uh, again, current experiences with regard to patients in COVID-19, uh, and even the controversial framework for allocation of scarce treatment resources have all reinforced that suspicion. And what is most exciting is that for the first time in, in my life, I feel like there's a real push to examine more deeply the systemic racism and the extent to which it has informed the injustice in this country. And so the question is, where do we go from here? And certainly there's going to be a need to take a critical, hard look and a lot of hard work to address the social determinants of health that, um, uh, and to look at those through an anti-racist lens. But I must uh, acknowledge that for most of us, we are not in a position to make those big kinds of systemic changes where most of us are not going to be legislators. We certainly are going to be advocates and activists. But certainly all of us can do our part to address the racism, to address the injustice, um, one encounter at a time. And I'd like to start by sharing uh, some of what I've learned over the years in terms of how we address injustice uh, one patient at a time. I'd like to begin by sharing the story of um, one of my very dear friends who about three years ago was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she asked if I would accompany her to her first doctor's appointment, certainly happy to do so. In the waiting room, she seemed somewhat anxious. Uh, she shared that the most important thing for her was to be sure that the doctor knew that she loved Jesus and that God intended to heal her. Of the many things that I loved about my good friend, the thing that really stands out to me is her, her unabashed boldness in declaring that Jesus was Lord. That may not be unusual in uh, North Carolina, but that's a pretty unusual thing in Boston, Massachusetts. And so when we got into the examining room and were waiting for the, uh, the assistant to come and take more information about her, she asked if we could pray. And we certainly did do that prayer and, and prayed that, that the practitioners would understand what her primary concern was. When the assistant came in and introduced herself and sat at her desk and positioned her hand over the keyboard to take down all the important information about my friend. When the question arose as to whether or not you 
know what is it that brings you to the doctor today? Of course, the simple answer would have been breast cancer. But my friend launched into um, a testimony like it was Friday night at Bethel AME Church. And she said that she was, um, had been saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost on April 23rd, 1989. That Jesus had come into her heart, that she had been running with the devil, but after Jesus came into her heart, she was running for Jesus. And she knew that her God was going to heal her in the name of Jesus. And she ended her testimony by throwing her head back and shouting hallelujah. And again, that might be normal in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina, but in Boston, we don't do that kind of thing. And I wondered how the nursing, um, the, the receptionists were going to receive her, whether she was going to pretend like my friend didn't say anything, whether she was going to snicker, whether she would roll her eyes in arrogance. And what was remarkable is by, by the time my friend got to her hallelujah, it seemed as though the assistant who prior to this looked pretty stunned, like something snapped in her head. And she leaned over and smiled at my friend and asked a simple question. So you're spiritual, right? And the tightness that my friend experienced all the time that she was waiting to see the doctor was released. And it was as though the thing that mattered most to her was heard and acknowledged. I want to submit today that what the, that nursing assistant did was very simple. And it's the one thing that virtually all of us can do when we're thinking about how do we go from here with regard to African-Americans with serious illness, and especially in the context of this pandemic. If we were Zulu tribes people, we would greet each other, not with the familiar greeting that we use here in America, I say hello and you say hello back to me. But I would greet you with the Zulu word sawabona, Sawabona. What is Sawabona? Sawabona says, I see you. Not just hello, but I see you. And your response would be, Ngikona. Sawabona, I see you in the fullness of who you are. Sawabona, I, in your presence and in my presence, you matter to me, Sawabona. And then the answer, Ingikona, means then I am here. I'm here in the fullness of my identity and I matter. I'm here, all of the places that I've been, the experiences that I have, my race, my gender, my culture, my income, I'm here in the fullness of all that I am and I matter, and I matter equally. You're not better than, I'm not less than. I matter. Not if only I were this, not as long as I do that, but I matter for who I am, full stop.
I've come to appreciate throughout my careers as both a physician and a pastor that the universal struggle in life is to be seen and to, be, to feel like I really count and that someone says that I matter and all of my experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they count in terms of who I am, where I've been, and where I'm going. I matter equally, full stop. One of the things that often gets in the way of people being seen. This is a patient who has a cataract, and I suspect that there are some people out in the audience who had cataracts. I had cataract surgery about a year and a half ago. The thing that was most remarkable about that cataract is that I didn't realize all the ways that it was compromising me. I didn't realize that it even mattered how I walked. Uh, things that uh, just didn't seem to be as bright. I had the electrician change out two units in my house because they just weren't bright enough. And it wasn't until I had the cataract surgery that I realized just how much I was missing, how much I wasn't seeing. I wanna suggest that there are uh, implicit bias is like a cataract. It's a social cataract. Implicit biases, those things about people that I oftentimes don't even recognize uh, form my biases, but those things about people that make them invisible for me. Many people have experiences, certainly as African Americans, where they have felt invisibilized. This healthcare system for many people has been a place where people have felt invisibilized. COVID-19 in particular has highlighted the ways in people which people have been invisibilized. But there are other biases as well, in ethnicity, gender identity, um, body type, hair texture, so many things that just in the course of living life, we develop biases. We don't necessarily think about it. It's not like we wake up in the morning and say that I'm just not going to be nice to an old person. But the bias gets in the way of us seeing individuals and appreciating individuals. And so much of our work is to undo our own isms. And one thing that I've learned is that we all have our isms. And the ongoing work is to identify my isms, to, uh, to work on those isms, to have other people hold me accountable around those isms. That is a critical piece of actually seeing people. And there's no arena that's more important in our capacity to see people is in the context of medicine. I want to suggest that you might want to look at this, um, the, the website that I've referenced in the lower corner of this slide, implicit bias, that really helps people to think about what some of their biases might be. Let's take another look at why spirituality is particularly important for African Americans, to have people acknowledge their spirituality. And I find that oftentimes, especially in our modern culture, people are sometimes uncomfortable. And this is a particular issue uh, in, um, in, in Boston, I will say. But as I travel around the country, you know, I, I find other people are concerned about the extent to which who they are as spiritual beings 
is not something that is um, that gets high regard. Why is this important? Well, I want to share with you. Uh, this is the research from Tracy Balboni. I think, uh, and you all certainly know the person who's uh, shared this slide with me. This is from Kimberly Johnson, who's well known to many of you. Uh, uh, she is at Duke. Uh, in a study that Tracy did, the provision of spiritual care to patients with advanced care, cancer, associations with medical care and quality of life. Tracy's work demonstrates the importance uh, of even medical providers at least acknowledging and providing support for people to get um, support for their spirituality. In this uh, study, uh, Tracy looked at patients who have greater religious coping or greater support from religious communities. And let me hope that this works. And note that where such is the case that these individuals have lower rates of hospice care, uh, and which is an indication that we primarily prefer that if people are going to die, if that they get some kind of hospice support in their home. Uh, and so people who uh, tend to have greater religious coping and greater support from religious communities tend to have lower rates of hospice use, higher rates of aggressive medical care at the end of life. Uh, this is certainly the case for African-Americans as well. Let's see here. Okay, I hope that I, let me try this. Okay, it's certainly more common among African-Americans, which means that African-Americans tend to have lower rates of hospice use and higher rates of aggressive medical care at the end of life. Thank you for your patience as I try to navigate these uh, 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 these PowerPoints and uh, doing that on Zoom. Why is this important? Uh, because African-Americans, again, with greater religious coping and greater support from uh, religious communities are likely to have even lower rates of hospice use and higher rates of aggressive medical care at end of life. Um, and let's take a difference, uh, take a look at the difference it makes when there's medical team to support uh, that uh, there is to provide spiritual support um, during the serious illness. So again, we're looking at hospice use, um, aggressive medical interventions, and death in the ICU. And when we add, when we consider that there is um, some end of life discussion or medical team support, the first one, there's no end of life discussion versus uh, hospice use, and the same thing versus, excuse me, versus medical team support, the same thing here for aggressive medical interventions where there's no end of life discussion. If you add end of life discussion, then there's less aggressive medical interventions with regard to death in the ICU. If we add end-of-life discussion or medical team support, then there's less death in the ICU. And again, the difference it makes when the medical team offers spiritual support. What's not clear from the paper is exactly what the nature of that spiritual uh, support is. But when people, when patients say that they feel like they got spiritual support from their uh, medical team, then they have higher hospice use, less medical interventions, and less death in the ICU. So what providing spiritual support is not only important because it matters to people, it's also an important opportunity to provide better medical care. And now take a look at um, re religion in, um, in the United States, again, to help us get a sense of 
how much that matters to African-Americans. If you look overall at religion in the United States, this gives you a breakdown. And what you can see is that, um, for, that many people identified with a, tra a religious tradition. If we look at um, that belief in God by race and ethnicity, uh, again, what you'll see is that for many African-Americans, and this is from the Pew Research Center, the U.S. Religious Landscape Study, which is conducted every seven years. And so according to this study from 2014, 83% of people who identify as Black um, uh, have a belief in God. And uh, again, I apologize. And 20 and 11 percent have a belief in God, and they're fairly certain of that. So, overwhelmingly, 94 percent of, uh, of Black people say that they either absolutely um, believe in God, or they are they're fairly confident and uh, that there is a God who cares about them. And that's particularly important because for many people spirituality or how they identify as spiritual beings informs how they understand life, how they do life, how they make sense of life, how they respond in the midst of adversity. And again, looking at African-Americans, and we'll use that term, usually it's primarily identified with people who are descendants of, of uh, African African uh, who were brought here as slaves. Uh, and, uh, and so this is the term that, that Pew Research refers to. So 79% identify as Christians. And with regard to uh, attendance at religious service, 47% uh, attend at least once a week, 36% at least once or twice a month, or a few times a year. So again, what we're seeing is for many African-Americans, engagement in terms of religion really matters to them. And then in terms of participation in prayer, scripture study, or religious education, 39% once a week, 14% once or twice a month. And this other information is actually from their 2007 study. And I bring this to your attention because one of the conversations that I often have with clinicians with regard to caring for African-Americans is the the uh, concern and sometimes the challenges that are presented when African-Americans have a firm belief in miracles and will want to continue more aggressive treatment because as my friend um, that I referenced early on said, she was absolutely confident that God was going to, uh, to, to work a miracle in her life. So 84% of individuals believe in miracles even if they don't identify as a Christian, they very much believe in miracles. And uh, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Corey Booker, who is a, a pastor in the Detroit area, uh, has a, a, excuse me, Corey Kennard, offers a really helpful um, analogy in terms of why it is so important to think in terms of people's spirituality and address people's spirituality. Uh, he references a, a, a man in his congregation that he calls Sam, who's a 60-year-old man, who's a cradle Christian. Um, that means that they, this is an individual who's grown up in church, was born in church, probably baptized in an early age, and has attended church all of his life. Uh, if, if we surmise that this individual between attending church or attending Bible study uh, spends six hours of church, uh, of time in church, and by the time that individual is 60 years old, 
they have spent some 20,000 hours in church. Again, that's just in church, which doesn't even inform how they live their everyday life. And he makes that point because when we offer a difficult diagnosis to an individual and, uh, and expect uh, and, and don't pay attention to their spirituality, even as when we counter them with regard to the belief in miracles, recognize that all of us, our lives are like a, a timeline and we are, we are engaging with that individual at a particular point, one dot on the course of their lifetime. And so if I come in as an individual and say to them, no, this isn't going to happen, no, you can't do that, um, then I am countering the wisdom that they have gained from 20,000 hours uh, in church and, uh, and not only that, but the wisdom that they have gained from their early childhood and reading scripture, hearing stories of people who were healed and reading scriptures uh, about the fact that God is still, again, in the healing business. It's very much a part of African-American culture. And uh, but one of the frequent themes that you will hear if you uh, attend a, an African-American testimony time, for example, is oftentimes people will share stories about healing, stories of miracles. And, uh, and they're not necessarily big miracles where something uh, that unexpected happened, but for many African-Americans, the culture says that even waking up in the morning is a miracle. Getting started on my way is a miracle. And one of the themes that you'll hear often are stories that will counter the wisdom of the physicians. You'll often hear people say, well, the doctor said this, but Jesus said that. Several months ago, we sang a song, an old time uh, uh, gospel song in which the individual is talking about Jesus uh, being in the room and that we're being invited into the room. And the lyrics are, Jesus is my doctor. He writes out all of my scriptures. He heals all of my diseases in the room. And again, there's the sense that the, the doctor doesn't do that, that Jesus is my doctor. Much of that, again, is rooted in people's experience, their lived experience, but also the stories that have been shared uh, throughout the generations. So again, when we interface with someone at a point, we recognize that there's a long history, generational history of an experience that casts doubt on the extent to which the providers, the healthcare system really cares about people like me. And we are very much running into that in the context of COVID-19. Certainly the ways that, uh, that, that testing was made available, where the neighborhoods that it was made available in, um, the, the experience with regard to contact for a number of uh, factors have come together to unfortunately reinforce that notion, uh, that notion of racism that is embedded even in the healthcare system. And much of our work in terms of addressing and redressing um, this crisis in terms of where do we go from here is to acknowledge that and to begin the hard work of meeting people where they are, eyeball to eyeball, I see you.
what are some of the strategies that can be employed in terms of um, engaging in more open and effective communication with parents, with patients and families with regard to spirituality? Well, I want to suggest that it's not actually a black box. Uh, we already know some of what we can do. And some of what we can do begins at this place of being curious. Certainly medicine has come this far because people were curious. They wondered. They had questions. Likewise, in the context of our interaction with each individual that we encounter, we need to stay in a place of curiosity. No, uh, I, you're not going to do that. Tell me more. Explain more. What, how can I understand that better? You are believing God for a miracle. What is a miracle to you? What would that look like? So there's the importance of really staying curious. And I can't um, underscore enough the importance of at least exploring what spirituality means to each individual. And that is really different. And I do use that term spirituality because uh, it, while many African-Americans identify as, Christian, as Christians, not all African-Americans do. And what that means to one person might be different from uh, to another person, certainly even within my congregation, how people understand theology, uh, the things that they believe in differs, even though we all go to the same church. So this is a one simple tool, and there are a number of tools that are available that you can use to uh, explore people's uh, spirituality. This is one that I like because I think it's kind of open-ended. Uh, and uh, so beginning with um, sources of hope, what are your sources of hope and strength? Uh, what do you hold on to during difficult times? And I found that, it's, again, it's open-ended. This kind of question that I pose even for my congregants, even though we're in the same the same congregation, is I want to know what hope looks like to you. I want to know what strength looks like to you. To what, what extent does Jesus inform that? Are you a part of a religious or spiritual community? Does it help you? And if so, how? Do you have personal spiritual uh, beliefs? And again, we don't make assumptions that just because people go to a particular church and other people believe it that same way, that that individual believes that same way. And then in particular, when we're looking to address their medical issues, to uh, what effect does that have on how you do life and how you would like me to provide care for you? or with regard to end-of-life issues. So this, there are a number of different tools that are available. And I really want to encourage you, if you've not identified one that is useful, that you've, you've used, just do it. And again, I encourage people, sometimes it's intimidating, but what I found is that the more you ask the questions and go again in the space of curiosity, the easier it becomes and the more people are willing and able to share for you. And then we get a point of we are able to really begin this hard work, this ongoing work of actually seeing people. I want to share this um, particular tool because again, one of the uh, uh, challenges sometimes in dealing with African-Americans is particularly with regard to this uh, adherence to a belief in miracles. What I've found over the years, and especially with working with my congregants, is that, um, that there is no way to rush people into that space of acceptance uh, that, that really requires just being with people. And 
people often ask me, do I come to this kind of a talk as a pastor or do I come to this talk as a physician? Well, I come to this talk as fully both of those. I am fully pastor and I'm fully physician. Though I will say that from my, through my physician lens, if someone asks me what I anticipate the outcomes of a particular disease, if someone has a particular disease, what do I think will be the outcome? Now, certainly through my pastoral lens, I absolutely do know that God works miracles. And I've seen God do things that, that I, I could only explain by way of a miracle. But my default actually is the survival data. What, what are the numbers? That's kind of my starting point. Uh, but what I've learned to do is to stay where people are and to be on that journey. And even with regard to the issue of miracles, I have found that people, it's often not a static conversation, but it's something that's evolving. And so I may have someone like my, my friend that I've referenced who very much in the beginning, absolutely not, regardless of what your data shows, I absolutely am firmly persuaded that God is healing me. And so they may be what some people would say would be in a denial stage, but as, time goes on as more of the data comes in, as they begin to have more experience, sometimes that absolute firm confidence that God is healing will become, I believe that God will heal. I hope that God will heal until we get to that place where, just like Jesus said when he was going to the cross, who, Jesus, who didn't want to experience the crucifixion, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. And patients can get there for the most part if we're willing to stay with them. I think the important thing is to stay in conversation because oftentimes I've seen clinicians really dig their heels in and, uh, and so that the individual, the, the patient now, not only has to defend their own belief, uh, but now they've got to defend the name of Jesus Christ. But if we can just stay with individuals all along the way, trying to be better at seeing them uh, and, and making it clear that I'm here for the long haul, that's the thing that really matters. And that's the thing that best positions us to, um, to be in conversation and to support the patient. I wanna share with uh, you now another tool that I have also found very helpful when I'm uh, engaging with patients, my own congregants or other individuals around this uh, with a serious illness. And I, I have here what I call Pastor Gloria's prayer. And if you have one of my patients, I promise you that you can anticipate that we have gone through this prayer. So I will often start out with sharing uh, a sense of, we, as we pray, gratitude for God's amazing grace. Thank you, God, for all the ways that you've shown up in my life and in the lives of my loved ones. And acknowledge emotions. And yet, God, I really don't understand this. I'm angry about this. I'm disappointed about this. Um, God, I, you just need to know how I really feel. But then we affirm a trust in God. 
I only know to trust you based on my experience and the experience of my people and my people's people. I only know to trust you. And it is, uh, it is with a sincere heart that I ask you for healing. Um, I, I, a, I really believe and I'm trusting you uh, to heal me of this disease. And then we ask for the strength to endure because no matter what we're going through, it will be difficult and we need the strength to endure, both for me and for my family members. And I'm going to pray for the wisdom of clinicians. Um, ultimately, my trust is in God, but I am praying for the wisdom of the physicians, for them to summon the fullness of their knowledge, their experience, their judgment, and do the thing that is best. But again, ultimately, my confidence is in you, God. And I end the way I began with expressing gratitude for God's grace. There's a parallel conversation if I were to come in my role as Dr. Gloria. And this may, um, and, and it doesn't require an individual to, um, to believe the same thing that the patient does, but it does acknowledge, first of all, I thank you for coming to our institution. I thank you for the opportunity to care for you. I'm grateful uh, to, to be able to provide this care for you. And having talked with them and had a sense of what their emotions are, we acknowledge those emotions. I, I, I understand that you're afraid. This is very difficult. This is, the road won't be easy. I acknowledge the fear, the frustration, the anxiety that you might be experiencing. But as we've talked, I understand that you have a faith in God. And I want to affirm your faith in God. It's not necessarily my faith, but it certainly is the, the faith that has brought you this far. And I affirm that. I want to affirm your hope for healing. I would like for you to be healed. That's the thing that, would really, that I'm, I'm really working for, is that if you're healed, that you're cured. And I worry. And this is where we express quite honestly what our experience has been, what the data shows, what, what the possibilities or even the likelihoods might be down the road. I, I affirm your hope for healing and I worry. And then we're gonna ask for the strength, the strength again for um, the patient, but the strength for me and my commitment to go all the way with you. I don't know where this road is taking me, but I want you to know that I am going all the way with you and I'm supporting you all the way. Um, if, if given that you pray, if you're comfortable, you can, you can even pray for clinicians or you can, you can uh, be feeling for us. And again, affirming their faith in God and expressing gratitude for the patient. And so I get back to um, where we started, is this, this importance of actually seeing people, seeing them for who they are, recognizing the challenges that they face, seeing them in the fullness of who they are. And again, appreciating that it's not so much that we wake up every morning and that any of individual wakes up in the morning, with an intention of being biased, but it is in the course of living life and sometimes living um, it, it, things that we've learned, things that we've seen, things that we've heard, that 
oftentimes will render people to be invisible in our eyes. And I, I, I want to encourage us, though, to get to a place where it's not just simply being able to see people in the context of our physical eyes and what we can gather superficially, but there's a deeper way that we can begin to address and redress the injustice. Again, on every individual encounter, an opportunity to, to, to make people whole. And I, I share this, um, which has been a, a guiding aspect of, of how, I, how I thought about medicine early on, and again, how I do life. I actually came to, um, to in our tradition, we talk about making a decision for Christ. And I came to that relationship for me when I was in my first year of medical school. And so I was learning how to be a competent physician at the same time that I was learning how to be a good Christian. And oftentimes there was tension between the two. And again, I suspect that many of you as clinicians or, uh, or individuals who've worked with clinicians have appreciated sometimes what that tension can be. Uh, and I was talking with a, a woman who subsequently became my what we call our mother in ministry. And she said something very profound. She said, you know, really what matters most is that you don't see yourself as a Christian versus a physician, but recognize that you're being called to a ministry of healing. And a ministry of healing does not constrain me to be either or but it offers me the opportunity to be both and. And I think the best way to really come to this with our, our clients, with our patients, is to come with a, not just with an I see you with a physical eye, but to bring our whole persons to meet the individual where they are as a whole person and to be able to see that I, in my wholeness and entering into a relationship to see you in your wholeness. And that's how we move forward as we think through this crisis of COVID-19, to be able to see people in the fullness of who they are, to begin treating them in the fullness of who they are, with the, to treat them justly, and again, this is a long work. Where we are today is the, the effect of hundreds of years of injustice. And the way forward is one step of it at a time. Each one of us individually doing that work to see people in Sawabona experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. White Hammond. You mentioned that the Ministry of Healing, um, you recognize that it was not an either doctor or a Christian, or either doctor in your case, or pastor, but both and. And that strikes me that part of the ministry of both pastors and physicians is to teach. And here you are in the COVID-19 moment, you have a congregation of people, in addition, I'm sure other people who look to you, to give them counsel as a physician, I know I've been asked by 
just friends on the street. What do you think about this? You're a doctor. And, and then to give them counsel as a pastor, how do you, if Christ is our healer and God loves us, how do we faithfully respond in this moment? Sure. What's that been like for you, and what what are you telling your your people? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that uh, question. We've been uh, you're absolutely right. So we do we do both. <laughs> we provide both in in the sense of we um, we certainly make sure that people have access to uh, accurate scientific information. Um, so we. We provide regular updates of what's happening with COVID. We've had a number of different forums, as you might imagine, and uh, make sure, again, and dispel all of the, the misinformation and disinformation that is, is there. But we also regularly preach about how people come through this. And I, what I, uh, when people ask whether or not this is... Uh, this is um, from God. I know that this isn't this isn't a, a plague that is sent by God. The, the science is there. There is a there is an entity called COVID nineteen, and it, just like so many other viruses and bacteria, there there's a scientific way that it works, and there are uh, there are the ways that we can prevent it and the things that we can do to treat it. I certainly um, don't try to offer any solid understanding of why uh, individuals, any, 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 any individual gets sick and even dies from COVID. We, we certainly know that that is the case, that, there, that people do get sick and they and they die. We offer a lot of, as you can imagine, spiritual support, emotional support as well. And so it's a comprehensive effort. And I think that's what happens in community. Our community is just happens to have some physicians as doctors, but we do the same thing that other pastors do. We give people access to accurate information and then provide pastoral support in a comprehensive way for the many and, and all kinds of other support as well, economic support. Uh, the, the, as you know, there have been a number of other things that have come along with COVID as well. So we're there to provide full support. Mm -hmm.